Please state your name for the record, sir. Uh, Nick Merker. Do they say that in court ever? Do that like? Uh, do they say sir? Kevin, I've been to court like twice. I don't. I don't even know where the courts in Indiana are, and that's where I'm a practicing attorney. I. I. I don't do that type of stuff. Oh, I don't want to edit this out though. So uh, <laughs> that's, on, that's on the record. It's fine um, with me. That, so uh, I guess just up front. I'm going to call you Merck a thousand times and I'm not going to edit anything. So uh, when I say Merck, we're referring to to my good friend, Nick Merker, Esquire. You you still use the Esquire like Fletch does, right? Uh, yes. Every email, of course. And I think I think a lot of people have that one friend. They're like, how did this friend become a lawyer? And like, you're that for me, but not because like you were... <laughs> <laughs> like not, you know, like I think most people is just like, man, how did that guy amount to anything? I, I am always curious, like uh, in terms of like the how did I know how it happened, but like the how did this guy become a lawyer thing? Because you were like so technical, like you went to school for engineering. You know, you and I grew up together. We worked together. There's a previous episode of this podcast where we tell a little bit more about the backstory, but um, so maybe real quick, like uh, how. How did you become a lawyer? Yeah, well, so we worked together at a at a dot com, and uh, after you left, I became kind of the not by title, but the CISO for the for the dot com, and so I started interacting with our legal team all the time, and it was interesting because I realized that our legal folks did not have any technology background, but they were in an incredibly uh, technical company. And so I was finding myself teaching the the lawyers how the uh, how the technology worked, so they could relate that to the legal concepts, and that got me thinking that hey, I could maybe be a differentiator in this space. I could come in and have that technology background and use it to support my legal practice. And so that's that's why I started going to night school, and uh, you know, eleven years later, here I am. Awesome. And I guess we should say at the time, the statute of limitations was not up on all of the like Ultima online crime ring that you were running, right? So it was <laughs> going to be good to have the little, you could uh, operate pro se if any of that stuff come up came up to bit you. It's a legal exactly. term. It's a legal term that I know. Uh, and that's the only legal term that I know. So <laughs> um, also, this will be the start and the finish of our Black Hack, our Black Hat presenter series because... I looked and I only know one person that spoke at Black Hat this year and it's you, buddy. Wow. So uh welcome to to the the Black Hat season uh finale of <laughs> of our podcast. But uh so yeah, you got to to talk uh, at Black Hat and we're gonna kinda cover uh, I guess we'll do it um you know what? You know, Dennis is not here, so I'm not used to doing it, but but why don't you uh Nick, do you have a do you have a secret for us? Well, my secret is that uh, incident response folks don't understand how to actually work incidents. Um. <laughs> For sure. For sure. I mean, 
on more than one level, but <laughs> um, I mean, there's obviously so, so we're we're speaking in broad swaths, right? And a lot of times, people who are working incidents aren't even incident response folks, right? Like they're just maybe they have four or five jobs. So, um, I I have some questions. I I read the talk, and also I just have like personal questions of like what I see on TV. Like you refuse to start the podcast with me where we go through each episode of the practice and explain the law to me via that mechanism. <laughs> so this is the best alternative I have, but um, like in your talk and on TV, one thing that's always been very confusing to me was privilege. Like is privilege the, you know, I guess it's easy to say, Oh, you know, you, you told you tell your lawyer that, that you really killed somebody and they can't tell. But to me, it's like, is privilege the knowledge? Is privilege data? Is privilege what the lawyer knows? Is privilege how you do something? None of it is uh, is super clear to me. So maybe we could start with uh, privilege uh, using season four of the practice. I tricked you into doing it. No. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about privilege? Okay. So, and privilege is really important uh, for working security incidents, which I'll get into in a little bit. But the the kind of policy behind privilege is exactly what you described. You committed some crime, or maybe you're accused of some crime, and you want to be able to go speak to an attorney freely and say whatever you want and know that that attorney isn't going to then immediately show up in court and say, oh yeah, did you hear what Kevin told me about the crime he committed? That's the policy behind privilege. But there's uh, so many misconceptions about it. For example, basic underlining facts about an event are probably not going to be covered by attorney-client privilege. The point of privilege is for the uh, individual or the company to go to the attorney and say, how would we defend this in court? What would our strategy be to defend this? So basic facts about the event are not associated with the defense. So, for example, the fact that an attacker got in because we didn't have uh, multi-factor authentication. If you want to argue that multi-factor authentication is not required, that might be protected by privilege. But just the basic fact that they used a username and password is likely not going to be protected by privilege. And the issue in incident response is everyone wants all of those facts to be privileged. And so we've entered this weird legal quagmire where you are papering up uh, every investigation that is conducted surrounding an incident and trying to get all those facts protected. And courts have, at least in the last year and a half, said, hey, come on, you can't, you can't do that. That's, that's really interested, interesting to me that you, you said that because, I, I mean, and it's obviously 100% at this point of the investigations that you're dealing with have lawyers there. But I think that, the, that you described, you know, a, and a common way that things can go wrong in which like, you know, firms are trying to to paper up all those things. Alternatively, just no legal, <laughs> you know, thinking at all, right? You're rushing because you're trying to recover a service or something like that. And maybe you don't even know that there's some type of, uh, you know, monetary impact or something like that that's later on going to compel you. So do you, do you have any thoughts about those extremes or, or where, you know, how, how people should prepare to both kind of swiftly respond to the incident as well as kind of doing the, the things you're talking about to, um, you know, optimize their, their protection of, of information that's relevant to the case. 
Yeah. And so I, I think I need to give uh, comments on that based off of what has happened in the last year and a half with these legal cases, mm-hmm. um, because they, they tell you the problems and, and how to avoid uh, the, this issue. And so okay. it, it all started with this uh, Clark Hill case. Um, and in this Clark Hill case, it's a decision from January of 2021 in the uh, District of Columbia. And what happened in that case is you had a major forensics provider, like a, a brand name forensics provider, that entered into a, um, an arrangement with a, uh, a company, and they were investigating the security incident. And the whole purpose of their, in, uh, th- their engagement was to work with attorneys and to be part of a privileged investigation. And then alongside them, which is supposed to be completely separate and apart from them, was a non-privileged investigation that was being conducted with another IR provider uh, and the company, and presumably without attorneys involved. Is that and so? Is that what people call two-track investigation? Yes. Yes, this was the the classic two track investigation. One track designed. Uh, this was the non uh, the non legal one. D- that track was designed to just hey, we got to get the business back up and running. We got to figure out what the attacker did. We need to just get operations going. And then the legal investigation was uh, designed theoretically to be in anticipation of litigation. Our hmm. whole purpose of this is to figure out what the attacker did, and then come up with our defense for when a class action lawsuit is filed against us. Um, The problem, and this is the first lesson, the problem is that they did not actually have separation between those two tracks. And uh, what what happened is, in this case, was a class action lawsuit. The plaintiff um, brought this case saying, hey, you lost my information. I want some uh, remuneration for that. And um, they, the court said, hey, what, what you actually did here is you didn't do this investigation in anticipation of litigation. You use this investigation report in your legal track anticipation of litigation uh, investigation. You use that report just in ordinary business. For example, you showed it to your board. Uh, you used it to get back your operations online. You didn't. You 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 said this was going to be an anticipation of litigation, but it really wasn't. And this other track that was supposed to be that non-privileged track, they didn't really do anything. Is, is, gotcha. I mean, because it is it is a valid strategy to have those two parallel investigations. And I think I think that like tar- the target case pressure tested a little bit of that too, yeah. right? Like because I, I, I have um they so they did do it and it was questioned and the the court in that that case kind of backed him up that says, Yeah, this was two track. So and this was okay. Like they didn't get access in that case to targets yes. IT investigation or whatever the, the, the non-privileged track was. But, but the lesson here is that papering up your privilege is not enough. Like in this, in this Clark Hill case, the mm. leading forensics provider had a three-party engagement with the law firm, the forensics provider, and then um, the company. And in that engagement letter, it says, hey, we're doing this in direction of counsel in anticipation of litigation. But the court says you can't just have a paper that says this is privilege. You actually have to act like you're doing something in anticipation of litigation. And so these two-track investigations, I still think, are critical. If it's a major event, you should be conducting a two-track investigation, but you actually have to do the one track purely in anticipation of litigation. And the other track is actually there to get the company back online and things working again. Um and, and if you bleed them together or if you start using the legal track for operations, you're going to blow privilege, at least is what this Clark Hill case says. Okay. So 
if we're going to make a TV analogy for this, I'm a billionaire who kills my wife and I engage the practice lawyers. I forget their names. I think one of them's <laughs> Alan. Uh, I want them to hire the worst investigator possible uh, to do their investigations during the case, right? So that they don't, they don't scrounge up all this stuff. And then secretly, I want to kind of clear my tracks. So I go out and I hire the best PI on my own. And uh, so, but anything that PI finds out about the good PI is not privileged because I'm engaging him to clean up my tracks and anything that the, uh, you know, the, the investigator that the practice firm hires finds would be privileged. So I actually want to reverse those strategies. <laughs> well, so I, I think what you would do is you would, you hire. Nick, I just want to remind you, I just want to remind you, you're under oath right now. <laughs> All right. So you'd hire Denny Crane and the oh, other guy okay. is yeah, Alan go. Shore, right? <laughs> okay. So you, you looked it up in the background. Good. <laughs> I just remember because I, huh. uh, so you, you'd hire Denny Crane uh, and Denny Crane would be there to investigate what occurred and come up with all these facts, like the facts behind, uh, you know, the, the woman was uh, murdered with a knife or the woman bled out in this amount of time. And all of those facts are not going to be privileged. It's just facts. Okay. And then you would have Alan Shore on the other side that would come up with, okay, so your alibi is, uh, you know, you loved your wife. You had all these, like, that That would be the, he's building your defense, whereas Denny Crane is just building the facts. Okay. And the facts are not privileged. Okay. Thank you for the explain it to me. Like, I'm five there. Like, I asked for that. That's, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> now, so certain types of investigations, you know, if this is a financial institution and a big sum of money non-reversibly goes to, you know, other parts of the world. What, how does that change the game? Are there any rules that apply in terms of, uh, you know, like treasury department, state department stuff that changes anything that we've talked about or that informs how other, how people should interact in other ways? Yeah. So um, I want to touch on ransomware next because those payments uh, do have some new liability. But what you just described is invoice manipulation or fund transfer fraud, where mm -hmm. uh, traditional business email compromise attacker tricks you to wire off money. Right. Um, and that area is really weird uh, from the law because the way the liability flows in that is just basic negligence theory and, and basic kind of super fact based who is in the best position to not have fallen prey to this event. Mm. Um, and so you, you look at the email, you look at the invoice and it's super, super based on facts. So that really highlights what we're talking about where you have all of these, like the, the actual email that you're or invoice that tricked you into wiring off the money is not going to be privileged, but your defense of, Hey, look at what's wrong with this email. Look at what's wrong with this invoice. Uh, here's, mm. here's this issue, that issue. That's all defense stuff. And all that defense stuff is going to be uh, privileged until you choose to bring it up in court to, to state your case, of course. But um, that, that's a really interesting one. And, I should do a quick plug because a lot of not uh, not a lot of uh, IR folks know this. There's this thing called the financial fraud kill chain uh, through the Department of Justice. You can call the FBI. 
Um, I usually use the FBI, but DHS can also do it, where if you inadvertently wire money off to an attacker, and it, let's say it goes overseas, if you get in front of the FBI, they can execute this financial fraud kill chain. And if it's within a 72-hour window, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, they may be able to actually stop that wire dead in its tracks. Uh, mm. more effectively than if you go to your transferring bank and ask them to stop the wire. If you go, what, what I recommend clients do is they go to their transferring bank and do everything they possibly can to get them to stop the wire. But then you also go to the FBI at the same time and see if they can execute FFKC and get the, uh, the wire transferred. Um, and it's just, it's a lot of people don't know that this FFKC thing exists. And it's something that uh, I, I, you, you should have a named FBI person in your phone oh, uh, if you're working IR stuff. Cool. I think maybe one slice, I mean, cause we were kind of, okay, this dentist office gets ransomware and sends money out, right. Or something like that. But I think a lot of our listeners might work in places that are providing the payment infrastructure, like whether that's a bank or, you know, um, anything else, um, any advice. And so in that situation, you know, Maybe somebody comes after and says, hey, the controls that the bank provided here around multi-factor or something like that aren't so- weren't solid. So is there any advice to kind of either the financial institution side security people around how they can just, you know, tune their programs to hold up against scrutiny like that? Like what? Yes. Um, and so the way the law works there, it's codified in the Uniform, Uniform Commercial Code Article 4A, which has been basically uh, put into law in almost every state in the United States in some capacity. Some states do a couple of wonky things, but for the most part, UCC Article 4A. And the law in this area is interesting because the bank is liable for fraudulent fund transfers. And when I say by fraudulent fund transfers, what I mean is um, I have a bank account and you, Kevin Threat Actor, log into my bank account as me and then initiate wire transfers. That's a fraudulent transfer where I didn't, I, I, Nick Merker, did not log in and was tricked into sending the wire. That's a completely different area of liability. That's what I talked about before. What this one is, is Threat Actor logs into my account, sends a transfer. Okay. So UCC Article 4A is what applies here. And The way the law works is the bank is liable unless the bank shows that there is a written agreement of a security procedure that the bank followed in good faith and that the security procedure is commercially reasonable. Mm. And so if you are a bank, the, the first step is have your security procedure for wire transfers in your agreements and get a written agreement between you and your customer on what that procedure is going to be. Um, and then the second thing is uh, make sure it's commercially reasonable. Mm-hmm. And the, to do that, what uh, we were in an arbitration uh, on this uh, many years ago, and we looked at the... Uh, when you say we, do you mean you and me? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You were an extra witness <laughs> in this case. That's right. I mean, like, I can't talk about the specifics of the case. Right. Of course, arbitration <laughs> is confidential. But um, we use the FFIEC, the financial... Uh, the Institution Examining Council, they have this set of guidance saying what is uh, what you should be doing from a commercially uh, reasonable perspective. And they say for wire transfers over the internet, you need to have multi-factor authentication. And so that is really the prime thing. If you are a bank and you do not have multi-factor authentication required for wire transfers, you're, I mean, you're just walking into this liability. But there's, there's an interesting little nuance in this law, and it's another area of UCC4A, 
And it says that if the bank offers you some procedure that is of a heightened level of security and you decline that procedure, then whatever you agreed to is commercially reasonable, no matter what it is. So another trick for banks is offer your customer something just hugely terrible, onerous, and you know hard to comply with. And then, and, and I'm being kind of facetious here, but you right. offer the bank, you, you have to put in two keys at the same time. You have to drive to a next state. You have to do all this stuff. And then the customer goes, I don't want to do that. And then I'll agree to this terrible procedure. And that's deemed commercially reasonable. I mean, you say, you say facetious and stuff like that, but certainly, you know, we're in a, we're in a world with new types of currencies, right? So mm-hmm. cold versus hot storage of, of wallets or something like that could easily, I could see easily foresee it's like, yeah, I don't. I don't want to use a bank that requires me to go to a location and put in a SIM card and put my thumb on it. Like, so you know, like I think, I think there is maybe some some uh, that that could be a hot interest area for for folks to know. Okay, yeah, even developing that capability, it gives you kind of a it's maybe has a higher value to your to your overall incident response process, right? Yeah, and cool. I re- I do want to touch. I don't know if you're going to talk about ransomware next. Or are you going to bring that up? Because this this OFAC guidance from October of last year that was just updated, we really should talk what, about. What is what is the OFAC? So the the Department of Treasury, Treasury okay. uh, has a um, Office of Financial Assets Control. I think is mm-hmm. what it's what it stands for, and they um, are in charge of trying to prevent folks in the United States from engaging with uh, embargoed countries or designated individuals from a commercial perspective. So we all know that if I'm you know a, a random retailer, I can't sell product to uh, Iran. They're an embargoed country. Um, they're on the list. Um, but there's other, and there's other countries on the list as well, but there's also individuals and entities on the list. There's right. multiple lists. <clears throat> I, I, you know, I know with the, the, in China right now, um, that was the big thing is, is in my, in one of my previous roles, we had a list of, of firms that we could work with in China and couldn't work with in China, given, you know, depending on what kind of what the projects were. So, Yeah. And it's it's not a bar just on a retailer engaging with an embargoed country or individual mm-hmm. or designated individual. It's anyone who's directly or indirectly involved in the transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is relevant with ransomware. So they came up with this October uh, 2020 uh, guidance, and they just updated it about three weeks ago um, with a little more meat. But essentially, they're saying, hey, if you make a ransomware payment... And it ends up that that ransomware payment goes to an embargoed country or some blocked person, then you are liable under this uh, under this OFAC um, kind of uh, regulatory authority. And it's strict liability, meaning intent does not matter. They do not care. Uh, well, mm. the the academic letter of the law says they don't care if you. Um, your company's completely down. You had no option whatsoever and you had to pay and you had no idea it was a payment to a designated person. They, the strict liability, they don't care. Just to put a finer point on that. There are some, some crimes that you have to know you're committing to be guilty of a crime. And there are some crimes that even if you don't know, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. They don't have, because that's obviously one of the hardest things for, you know, prosecutor or, you know, for a a plaintiff to prove, right, that somebody knew what they were doing when they did something. 
Exactly correct. And it's usually done from a policy perspective. I mean, you, th- you think about it, uh, statutory rape, for example, um, it's strict liability associated with that. And so if, if it's a consensual relationship between uh, an older person and someone under the statutory age, it does not matter if the older person did not know the individual's age. It does not matter if it was consensual. From a poly pers- policy perspective, we want to protect those children. And so it's strict liability. And it's the same thing here, a uh, di- little different of a, of, a, of a story, but same here in that we want to um, protect United States commerce from going to these embargoed countries or designated persons. And so mm. that's why it's strict liability. Okay. And it is anyone, like I said, directly or indirectly involved. So in a ransomware matter, when you want to make a payment, a random company isn't going to have, uh, a, let's say it's a $5 million in Bitcoin ask. A uh, random company is not going to have $5 million in Bitcoin hanging around. So they're going to have to engage with some uh, intermediary who's going to have that Bitcoin and make that payment on their behalf. And they're going to have to get money to that intermediary from their bank, their, their fiat bank. So you have your fiat bank, you have your crypto payer, and you have the company all involved in this transaction. And then you also have a cyber risk insurance carrier who's likely going to reimburse you for that payment. So they're involved in the the transaction. But then you also have me. I'm involved in the transaction. You also have an IRP provider involved in the transaction. So all of these entities are indirectly involved in that payment, all potentially liable under uh, this, this strict liability concept. So... The what's happening here is and now OFAC has designated a few individuals associated with ransomware. The folks behind CryptoLocker, WannaCry uh, and SamSam have all been designated. But um, the issue with ransomware is we don't know these folks rise and fall so fast as groups. We don't know who you're actually paying. So uh, when you're in this event, it's very difficult for you to know if you're engaging with a designated person or embargoed country. Um, so you do whatever you can to build up the best possible case that you're not. Um, but all of these entities are involved. So the practical issue with this OFAC guidance is delays. Uh, you have the insurance carrier who is requiring you to go jump through all of these hoops to make sure you've done what you're supposed to do. And then you have your bank who's doing the same thing. Once they realize you're going to make a payment in a ransomware event, they have you do all of this work to prove to them before they give you the money to make the payment, your money, uh, to prove to them that you are not paying a designated person or, or embargoed country. Right. Um, which in most cases, you just don't have the information, right? Yeah. You, well, you do whatever you can. You look at your, uh, the, the address of the Bitcoin wallet and see what else it's been engaged in. If you know the name of the, um, of the threat actor group, then you can look at to see what else they've said. For example, I had a matter with, it was uh, Darkside. And Darkside had in the news, they said, hey, some of our infrastructure is housed in Iran. Um, and so that raised the antenna on, on everybody in this matter. There was not, not related to our matter, it was another matter, but that made the news. And so our, uh, our negotiator with Darkside said, hey, uh, you said before that you had infrastructure in Iran. Is this is this real? And the uh, the threat actor said, "No, come on, that's ridiculous. We we were just posturing. We do, we don't have infrastructure in Iran. So we made the payment. Um, and <laughs> so they're pretty booked up on on what to say too. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. you would think so. Yes. Um. So I mean, you brought up insurance. Is there anything else? Because like insurance, I think for people that listen to this podcast, I I think there's a lot of just like hand wave like insurance is just like okay our firm's gonna buy insurance so that 
you know, because it's like too expensive to actually do the, do our jobs well or, or I don't know, but like what's the, what's the importance or what are some of the key decision criteria in having insurance for cybersecurity event, events in general? Do you have any like two, you know, guidance in less than a minute on, on, on what role insurance should play in your cybersecurity program or incident response program? Yeah, the whole point of insurance, this is generally not just for cyber events. The point of insurance is to transfer residual risk from you to the insurer, risk that you cannot mitigate. And that risk transfer is why insurance exists. Like if you're driving your car, you can't stop someone from just randomly uh, running into you. So Mm. you transfer that risk to the insurer. And that's what this cyber risk insurance should be for. It should be for residual risk, risk you cannot mitigate. You can never be 100% protected from an event. And so that little bit of percent that you can't protect, that's what you transfer. It should not be, I'm not going to have my InfoSec program up to snuff, so I'm just going to buy an insurance package. Interesting. uh, Yeah. And and how... Do you have any experience on, I mean, you kind of sit in this niche of, of both on the, you know, being very technical and on the loss. How good are insurance companies at determining whether or not there's risk on the table that, that they're insured clients? Like I assume that they're making, they're valuing or pricing the insurance based on how much risk is on the table in some way, right? Yeah. And they're way better this year than they ever have been because okay. uh, just frankly, insurance carriers have been losing their ass as a result of these ransomware events. Um, I've seen more limits claim, meaning claims that go to the top of the limit of your policy in the last three years because of insurance, uh, because of ransomware than I have any other year before. And so carriers, the underwriting process is getting much longer, much more in depth, much more scrutiny, and the price is just increasing dramatically. So before, if this was five years ago, client wants insurance, cyber risk insurance, I just give the name of the client to the broker and the broker goes, oh yeah, here's six companies that will insure against right. that. Now that's not how it works. Huge underwriting process. Is that an opportunity for technical and risk people listening? I mean, are there in- adjuster expert adjusters out there that are not like, is that even a career field that people should be considering? I, I think so. I think you should have a information security person involved in your insurance procurement process. One, just to make sure you're procuring the right stuff. And two, mm-hmm. to make sure you're explaining your InfoSec program appropriately during underwriting. So you get uh, the coverage that you can get, but there's a lot of startup companies that are trying to, um, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it, like automate this or analyze this in real time. So you have uh, Corvus Insurance is one, Travis mm-hmm. Security is another. They're standing up and trying to assess your company and then take you to market with the assessment that they've done to help uh, explain your practices to the carriers. And and when you say being able to, ju- to I think you said explain, not not justify, but like provide visibility into your practices for, and is the best way to do that is like these adoption of whatever the the most common frameworks are or trace it prevent you know like creating traceability between the things that you build and how they map into you know some of those key frameworks like NIST yes yes or um, iso or yeah i i think that's a great uh thing to do i mean think about it like if you're a service provider who is trying to sell your services to a customer the insurance carrier is your customer here you need to prove to them that you're going to protect uh their asset which is your infrastructure oddly uh and so it's the same thing yeah we've aligned to this industry framework we've done this and this but there's also black letter requirements that the carriers are looking for like if you don't have multi-factor authentication for remotely accessible resources you're not getting coverage anymore you're just Mm. not 
Uh, and there's a couple other things like that. Okay. Gotcha. Last um, item that I wanted to hit, and we should say that there's some more information available. Your slides are available, and hopefully soon your talk is going to be available. Um, it's available it's- now, but okay. you have to be a black hat. You have to pay for the videos. My, okay. It's not publicly available. Gotcha. Well, we'll kind of track along with you uh, at some point. I think a lot of those become public. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, yeah, so if you are black hat, then uh, in, in terms of registered, I'm sure you'll be able to look that up. Last thing I want to ask, and this is something that I have noticed a lot of, um, you know, the difference between when, when in terms of evidence preservation. So I took like a computer forensics class that was largely about this of, you know, imaging drives and and now we're getting into this like virtual space where man a lot of those those technologies being able to rip a hard drive out of something just don't exist anymore any any advice in terms of if you're trying to build a forensically sound you know like evidence collection practice right now what do you have any resources or do you have any at least comment from the legal perspective of you know what what people should be thinking about when they're on the track of of uh and also just maybe even how these two, when these two track things collide is probably preserving evidence, right? Cause there's only one set of evidence. Yeah. And so, um, I think, uh, it folks and infosec folks generally are pretty good at preserving, uh, forensically the logs and hard drives and stuff. I mean, I, I want to give a quick call out to NIST special publication, 861 rev two, which is in my slides, the computer security incident handling guide has a great section at section 3.25 about incident documentation and it says all the stuff you you should be. Um, Nick, we all believe that you're a lawyer. You don't have to to rattle off these. Things. <laughs> it's just it's it, everyone should look <laughs> at this incident documentation because this is like my biggest gripe in IRPs. But the thing that that doesn't get logged and that's in this uh, little blurb from NIST is a logbook. Somebody needs to sit down and take notes about major decisions that get made and why they were made. Uh, because you're going to, I'm in an uh, investigation right now stemming from a 2018 event. And uh, the investigator, the regulator is about to interview some people associated with the event. That's three years ago. Uh, And if we didn't have notes or a logbook or something to refresh their memory about what happened, there's no way people would remember why we made the decisions we made. So that needs to be captured. And that's often missed uh, in these events. Yeah. Very frustrating. I mean, log logbook was one, and then I think I saw it in your slides and something that resonated with me. I've done a lot of tabletop exercises in in the last couple of years, um, focusing on like application layer, you know, issues. One thing I noticed is everybody has these like extensive incident response plans that maybe weren't very tailored to them, but it kind of it stays in the drawer, you know, yeah. like they jump into firefighting mode and you know, they either forget or have never read or both the fact that they have this like, you know, incident response process documented. What, what do you think? Why, why is that getting left on the table? Anything people should be doing to make sure that they're using that and that what they use is not going, is, is going to provide value and, and, and be appropriate. Yeah. And so two quick things. One, I think someone needs to be designated in an incident. I would put this in the IRP, a person whose job is to make sure we're actually following the plan. And they sit in every meeting and they say, hey, uh, have we thought about this aspect of the plan that we're supposed to? Right. I mean, the so plan it's not is the incident commander. It's yeah. somebody who's like the script supervisor yes. of the, okay, gotcha. Yeah. That person should exist. 
Um, and because what happens naturally is like, let's say it's a company that this is their first big event or uh, maybe new people involved in an event where you forget this thing exists and you just are working the problem as quickly as you can. Um, and if you do that and you don't use your IRP, I, I assure you things are going to get missed. Maybe you don't paper up the privilege appropriately. Maybe you bleed between the two tracks. Maybe you waive privilege some other way. Uh, that's the whole purpose of your IRP is so you're doing this appropriately. Um, and it's, oh man. And also regulators are asking for this now. Um, I'm in another investigation where the regulator said, hey, prove to me. One of their questions was, and I'm paraphrasing, prove to me that you actually followed your IRP during this event. And I was like, oh, crap. I don't know how to do, I don't know how to do that. Um, right. So please, please follow your IRP. Please have an IRP, use your IRP yes. <laughs> and take notes about decisions you made along the way. And awesome. do your lessons awesome. learned at the end. When, when you're done with this event, go back, sit down and go, our IRP sucked in these five ways. Let's fix it before the By the way, time. like for people out there, that's the DevOps of incident response, right? Do the postmortem evolve, make it more usable. It was, it was probably... If it slowed down the investigation, it was probably because it just hadn't been pressure tested in the real world. And also, a lot of people aren't doing the tabletop exercises and thinking about this stuff. You know, it's like it's always the last thing on everybody's list. Oh, we'll push this back or whatever, yeah. unless it's absolutely required. I, there's there's not a ton of people out there that are opting in to do these like proactive, like well done tabletops. You know, so um, which well done tabletops is a huge huge variability right um so it, it either is, you know maybe it doesn't scratch enough of your process because it's kind of too minor of a simulated event whatever it is so i, th I think that that's another Im important if i were going to add something to this conversation it'd be run tabletops and use all this stuff then too so awesome anything uh that we didn't hit that you wanted to cover i know it's it's where it's a tight timeline these days dennis has been on my case but the episodes <laughs> over the summer were too long Three hours and 15 minutes of talking about the net, uh, Dennis, uh, you know, Dennis was giving me a hard time about, so. No, this is great. Thank you for having me, Kevin. It's always great to, to catch up and, uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to do this again. If there's another topic that can be of interest. Well, yeah, I think we promised that your, your follow-up episode was going to be like some college, uh, uh, gaming hijinks. So we'll get back to that in your next one. Excellent. We'll alternate between, sketchy gamer nick uh from the the late 90s and early 2000s and professional uh law firm partner nick will will keep that bounce in between extremes very thin okay. line between the two <laughs> i know that but i think hopefully we'll be able to uh to 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 get that out into a uh, a documented format that you can be uh, that can be brought up in future depositions excellent awesome thanks nick thanks kevin Bye.